How y'all doing this morning? Good. I apologize. Let me sing JoJo. It's all right. <laughs> First service, I said I apologize to everybody for our lack of band members, but Mardi Gras weekend takes most of them away from us. We were lucky to get Joe cleaned up and sober and up here. Oh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Hey, if you have your copy of Scripture, turn to John chapter 1. We are looking at this passage that really it begins the narrative part of, of what we've been laying out for the past few weeks. Uh, the, the narrative is really the meat and bone, or the meat and flesh, flesh and muscle, if you will, of the skeleton that, that John lays out for us in that prologue or that introduction. Because John is laying out these very theological points and then he follows it up with these stories that he's illustrating so in other words if you think about theology versus practicality so we go and learn things and then we say okay now what so in other words these things that we know to be true about Christ uh, things that we know true to be about God about our own human constitution okay so what in the sense of how do we live that out in daily life so John has done much the same thing. Like He's presented these ideas of who Jesus is, that he was before anything else was. He is creator. He is the word. And, and so now he's going to say light comes into darkness and darkness could not overcome it. This is what it looks like in a real situation. This is what it looks like when Jesus confronts this person or that person or this disease or this religiosity. Whatever it may be, he's going to show us now what that looks like in real life. So this is the first passage as we come to verse 19. If you think about last week, we talked about that very uh, awesome passage that talks about grace upon grace that we have and grace and truth that we have in Christ Jesus and the difference of the law and what was intended from the law and Jesus and what was intended from Jesus. The law brings death. Doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is good. Doesn't mean when Jesus comes, he does away with the law either. It is the fact that the law did what the law was intended to do, which was to reveal that we were sinners and to reveal how much we needed God. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to mediate between us and God so that we could be rejoined again, understanding that our righteousness would never be enough. So it has to be his righteousness imputed to us. Okay? So now he's going to begin telling us this gospel story. And notice again he starts off talking about John. Now he's already mentioned John twice. Very early on in chapter 1, and then you remember last week, there was this little parenthetical there where he talked about John understanding the preeminence of Jesus. In other words, that he was greater than John. Even though John's ministry may have come before Jesus's, Jesus predates John. He was before John. John is simply this forerunner that has come for Christ. So as John the Apostle begins the narrative part of his letter he tells us about john the baptist so let's read this passage as a whole and then we'll jump into looking at it verse by verse verse 19 and this is the testimony of john when the jews sent priests and levites from jerusalem to ask him who are you he confessed and did not deny but confessed i am not the christ and they asked him what then are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Another parenthetical here. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now, we're introduced to that big group that Jesus is going to have this conflict with throughout the rest of the gospel right there. Verse 25, they asked him, 
then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So let's, let's kind of paint a picture here. Have you ever heard a politician say, I am not running for that office. I am not. I am totally content with where I am. I am not running for president. I, I am serving the people of my state. I have no interest in the presidency. Only to find out weeks or months later, they come out and go, you know what? I've been advised by my friends and so much public pressure that I need to serve my country in this way. So I am going to put my name in the running for president or whatever it may be. And we all find out that, of course, they formed a political action committee like years before. And they always have wanted this. But we get to the point where we don't even believe them anymore because they we know that their aspirations is to get as high as they can. We, we doubt, maybe in our cynicism, we doubt that any politician is in it for the good of, of the culture or the humanity of it. They're in it for themselves. They're in it to get what they can get out of it. They're in it to promote themselves. They're in it for the titles, right? How many of you have ever known a coach to do that? Don't give any names. But I am not going to be the coach at that university. I am not leaving here. I'm so happy where I am. And the next thing you know, they've taken a plane flight to another place, and they're introduced as the head coach of another, and there they are. We see this over and over and over again. It's all about taking that next step up. It's all about the titles that come with those promotions. Now, I think it's very interesting here. Today, even though we live in this world that is full of self-promotion, it is a world where we on social media are encouraged to promote ourselves, to promote our agendas, to promote our theology, whatever it may be that you are so interested in. You have all the venues today to promote yourself and to promote the things that you're interested in. Not only that, we have, live in a culture of false humility as well. We have people who uh, act like they're very humble, but that humility is actually this really disguised form of arrogance. And so over and over again, we experience that in life, but I think it's refreshing here that as John opens up the narrative portion of this gospel, we find this guy who's gaining popularity. He's gaining this notoriety in the public eye, and yet he refuses to accept or claim any of the titles that have been pushed in his direction or have been ascribed to him. It's kind of refreshing, isn't it? I mean, John denies that he's the Messiah, and he points to the fact that here's why I can tell you I'm not the Messiah. I'm not doing messianic things. I mean, I'm baptizing with water, he says. I'm not the great one. And the reason that these people have come to John is because not they think that he's Elijah or the Messiah or the prophet. It's because that's what the people have been saying. The reason they come and they're asking this list of things is because that's what they've heard from the people. Hey, I think this guy's the prophet. Hey, I think this guy could be Elijah, come back in the flesh. Hey, this guy I think could be the Messiah. So they come and ask him point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And to each one of them, he says, no, I'm not. You know what's kind of refreshing? Is that someone knows who they are. They know who they are enough that they know exactly who they are not. And you know what? In our day and time, that's a refreshing thought because how many of you have ever had some older people, you always say the older people ask the younger people, hey, little Johnny, what are you going to be when you grow up? You ever heard that? 
And the only reason they're asking that is because they're still looking for some good ideas themselves. Because a lot of times what's happened is they have invested themselves in some kind of career, and that career is just not fulfilling, right? I mean, we grow up and we think that this career is going to bring something to us, and it doesn't bring the fulfillment that we thought. The success or the money or the retirement, whatever it may be, whatever we thought it was going to be, it turns out not to be quite what we thought it was. And so we're always looking for something else to fulfill us. And then we are bombarded by Madison Avenue and all the advertisements of things that we should be interested in or things that we should be concerned about or things that we should be buying to prevent our, our, our um, lack of interest in this world or lack of ability to be appreciated by the world, uh, to keep us young, to keep us ahead of the culture. And so over and over again, we're just looking at all these options that we can invest our time and our money in, and we fail to find ourselves in any of them. But here we have at the very beginning of John's gospel, a man who knows exactly who he is, to the point that he knows exactly who he is not. Look how it starts in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And that's the question we're all going to ask ourselves today. If you were asked, who are you, what would you say? Now, I know no, none of you probably would say, oh, I'm Elijah, or I'm a prophet. Now, probably none of you would say that. But the question really goes deeper than that. Who are you, really? I mean, do you really know who you are in Christ? Are you living out those truths of who you are in Christ? Do you fully understand who you are so that you also know who you are not and the things that you don't need to be involved in the things that you don't have to prove now he says here the jews now when he talks about the jews when we talk about the jews we think of a ethnic group of people but when john uses that term throughout his gospel he's talking about a very specific segment of the jewish population and that is the religious leaders they're also pretty much if you think about it from our culture they're also political leaders so when he uses the term jews he's talking about religious political leaders now when John began to attract this crowd, John the Baptist, um, he's out at the Jordan River. He's baptizing them. Now, this grows so much that it becomes like this little subculture that now all of a sudden the, the Pharisees, we're told here, are beginning to pay attention to it. So they send down this little contingent of Levites and priests to investigate exactly what's going on because they've heard the kind of titles that people are ascribing to John the Baptist. And so I believe that there's something very intentional here the way John is de further developing his gospel. Um, if you think about the way John opened up in the introduction, we made all those allusions back to the creation narrative. You know how he starts off in the beginning. Genesis starts off in the beginning. Only two books in the Bible that start that way. And then in the beginning was the word. How does God create everything in Genesis 1 through his word? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Then John uh, introduces light. Of course, the first thing you see in Genesis is God said, let there be light. And the light overcame the darkness. John says the same thing here. So we see a lot of parallels. Well, we continue to see them. If you look down in verse 29, notice he says, the next day. In verse 43, he says, the following day. In chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us that they remained there in that area for three days or for several days or for a few days, depending on what version you have. But if you total that all together, there's actually six consecutive days that John tells us about. Just like in Genesis 1, there's six consecutive days of creation. So there's all these parallels that we find. What I'm pointing at, that is 
is not central at all to John's point. But what I'm saying is that John is being very intentional about his structure, about the chiasms that we find here, and what he's drawing our attention to to be the most substantial points that he wants us to take away from that. And so as you move through the gospel, you find there's this picture of new creation. Okay? So there's this old creation that, that started everything, where God made everything good, but now there's this new creation. And that's why he keeps having these parallels going back to the old creation, because he's saying something new is happening. God is making things new. And it's very important that we understand that this person that comes into the picture is a, a symbol of that new creation. The reason I say that is there was this growing expectation in that first century that a Messiah was coming. Matter of fact, there was a Roman historian, his name was Suetonius. And Suetonius, in his writings, who was writing in that first century, said that it was fated among the Jews at this time that a Messiah would come from Judea. And so in his own writing, from a historical Roman perspective, not a Jewish perspective, they said, you know what, these Jews are talking about this all the time. I mean, if you sit in Judea any length of time and talk to someone, they're going to say, the Messiah is going to be here any moment. There was this expectation that was growing and growing and growing. Now, with these expectations, what also comes with that? All the crazies, okay? So all the crazies are coming out, and they're like, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus. And so they come out, and they're getting these people following them. And then what happens is as they begin these revolts, the Romans come in and smash them. And then they look at the religious leaders and say, you need to get control of this. And then what would happen is another, uh, what they would call a zealot, would rise up, and they would get a, a little following, and they would try and overthrow the Romans, and then the Romans would smash them. And they would look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and say, hey, you need to get a hold of this. So over and over again, what we find is the Pharisees have to control what's happening there because if they don't, they lose their standing with the Romans. So that's one of the reasons that we see them coming down to figure out exactly what's happening with John here. What kind of things is he preaching and who is it that he's claiming to be? So you can imagine with this bigger-than-life personality, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, preaching this message of repentance, baptizing these people in the Jordan River that were responding to this message, and growing in his popularity, not to mention that John the Baptist was the son of a Jewish priest, that the Pharisees were very interested and intrigued with what's going on out there in the wilderness. And notice the question that this entourage comes in uh, on behalf of the Pharisees says. They ask this very direct question. What does it say? Who are you? Who are you? And the way John answers this, I mean, don't you understand as this story is developing, the way John answers this, John the Baptist, it's going to be huge. So think about it. John literally, John the Baptist, stands between two worlds now it could have been very easy for him standing between the old and the new or the first covenant and the second covenant standing between it could have been easy for him to kind of blur those lines a bit at the very least he could have created a little bit of ambiguity about who he is he could have said something like now who are you and he was like who do you think i am and then let them talk and just ask questions over and over again or he could have said, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. What's it to you? I mean, he could have said a number of things. But in this point, he emphatically and clearly makes this confession. He answers directly. Look what he says in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, the wording of that sounds really weird, doesn't it? 
sounds like, well, did he confess or did he deny? What, what's exactly happening there? And that's because you have a very rigid translation from the original language. The NIV probably does a better idea of catching the uh, essence of this verse. They translate it this way. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So the repetition is when it says he confessed, he made this confession, he did not deny. In other words, he did not deny, I am not the Christ. He accepted it perfectly, confessed, I am not the Christ. It's emphatic, it's clear. I mean, this is exactly what John wants everyone to understand. He wants no one to walk away with any confusion about who he is. This language continues this idea of how John the Apostle introduced John the Baptist to us. Because if you remember his first introduction, he says he was a witness, that God sent this witness. Now, all of a sudden, you still hear this courtroom language, don't you? This witness is now standing up to testify. And the first thing he testifies is who I am versus who Christ is. And so that, again, becomes a theme throughout the rest of the Scripture. You'll hear stories and stories of people going and saying, what did Christ happen? What really happened to you? And they'll be like, hey, do you want to be his follower too? Over and over again, you see these witnesses of who Jesus is, who they are, and you find the religious leaders constantly asking the questions, trying to figure out exactly who Jesus is to catch him in that. And so I love how John the Baptist knows his place. I love how he knows his role. He knew who he was, and that is so refreshing. And I think we struggle with this today because we struggle with embracing our roles today. We, we struggle with accepting the fact that some people will be wealthy and some people won't. Some people will be beautiful and handsome and some people won't, okay? Some people will achieve these great things that everybody will go, oh, it's amazing. And some people will do amazing things, but nobody will notice it because it'll be done in the shadows. And when you understand your role and you understand where your worth and your value comes from, all of a sudden, life becomes easier to live because I'm not living for the audience of everyone out there who could possibly throw a kind remark my way. What I'm doing is just living to be obedient to what God has called me to do. No matter how great the world may think that is or how small the world may think that is. I'm going to show you in just a minute how amazing that is and how God's economy is very different than ours. Look at how he continues in verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So we've already he's already said, I'm not the Messiah. So now they bring it down a notch. Okay, you're not the Messiah. Well, what about Elijah or the prophet? Those are the two that are mentioned specifically. Now, Elijah, now think about this. For centuries, the Jews had read in the Bible that the great prophet Elijah, he was going to return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Matter of fact, when we study the book of Malachi, you remember the very last verses of Malachi in chapter 4 is introducing this idea of the great prophet Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. Now, it's interesting because when you see John unfolding his gospel right here at the very beginning, there's allusions back to the end of Malachi. The very same things that Malachi talks about there at the very end of his letter, John talks about at the beginning of his. So we see this transition from the first covenant to the second covenant. Now, beyond that, there are these uh, circumstances around Elijah's life that developed a lot of this um, folklore. The Elijah never died, okay? So they believed that because Elijah never died, because the scripture tells us 
that a chariot comes down and gets him and, and takes him off, that somehow he was going to come back in physical form. And when he comes back in a physical form, that he was coming as the front runner of the Messiah. Now, don't get confused here because John says, I am not Elijah. And then later on, Jesus, when he's talking about John, goes, John was Elijah. They're talking about two different perspectives. John is answering the Jewish understanding of Elijah, which was it was a physical return of Elijah. Now, think about this for a moment. The Old Testament tells us Elijah was a hairy man and he wore a leather belt. What does it tell us about John the Baptist? He wore camel hair, and he also had this leather belt, and he had a very weird diet as well. So you can see there's similarities between what you would have seen in John the Baptist, this guy in the wilderness, much like you had envisioned Elijah in the Old Testament running around the wilderness, running around Israel. And, and so there are a lot of similarities. Now what Jesus is doing is helping them later on, we're going to see this, Jesus is helping them to understand that that passage is not about a physical return of Elijah it's more about what Elijah represented in the Old Testament. This person will represent in the New. And so it's this foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah, calling people to repentance, preparing their heart for the coming of the Lord. Now, beyond Elijah, he also asked about the prophet. That's the second title, or actually the third, if you include Messiah there at the beginning. Where does the prophet come from? What's the difference in the prophet and Elijah? Well, and this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18, verses 15 through 18, Moses talks about a great prophet who would come before the Messiah comes. So there was this allusion to the prophet that was spoken of by Moses. There was allusion to Elijah who was going to return before the coming of the Lord. So they're asking all of these things. And remember, this is also in a culture of this increased expectation of the people that it was fated at this time that a Messiah was coming, that God was sending this Messiah. So all of this comes together, and this is the direct questions that they're asking John because they're checking off this list of everything that could be a possibility. And so verse 22 continues. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? In other words, what title are you giving yourself? Are you Pastor John? Are you John the baptizer? Are you John the, the proclaimer in the wilderness? What's the title that you're giving to yourself? Now look what he said. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So he's setting this up. They've been sent from the Pharisees. They know the Old Testament. They know all these prophecies. All these things are happening. And it's amazing the way John answers this right here. Okay? The guy's got to take something back to the Pharisees. I mean, they can't walk all the way out there, go and see John the Baptist, and then come back and go, he just said he wasn't any of those things. Well, who did he say he was? He didn't really say. So they've got to get something from him. So they ask, what are you saying about yourself? Now, John's reply here is very instructive. He says not he doesn't respond with a title. He says this, I am a voice. I think that's pretty um, amazing in the connection between how the introduction of the word is coming and there is a voice introducing the word that's coming. He doesn't say that I'm a title. He doesn't give himself any kind of accolades like that. He says, I am a voice, a singular one voice in the wilderness. And, and you kind of miss that if you don't come from the Jewish culture, but that's kind of John 
pushing back on them a little bit because what he's really saying there is there should be a whole bunch of voices. I am a lone voice in the wilderness. Even though there's all this expectation that a Messiah is coming. Even though all of you believe in these things, you know the history and you know what's been promised. And there is this expectation. And yet I am one voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Just like Isaiah told us. So, I think there's um, something for us to understand in John's words. They were wanting a title. What do you do? What do you call yourself? And I think John was saying, who I am doesn't matter. It's what I'm saying that matters. And I think that's refreshing. You know what that reminds me of? It doesn't matter what your history is. You have a message to share with people. It doesn't matter the things that you struggle with. You have a message to share with people. It doesn't matter the background you came from. doesn't ha- matter how much you've succeeded in life. It doesn't matter how much you've failed in life. You have a message that can be shared. It doesn't matter who you are. It's all about who he is. And so it doesn't matter who you are. What, what matters is what you're saying. And not only what you're saying with your mouth, but also what you're saying with your life. The things that you do, the things that you're involved in, the things where you're finding your validity and your worth. Where, where are you going? What wells do you find yourself going to to find those things? Because those things tell us of what we're, where we're trying to find our worth and contentment in this life. What would you say about yourself? Now, what's interesting about this is that later on, we're going to find Jesus is confronted about John the Baptist. They're going to ask him, so John the Baptist's disciples come and ask Jesus some questions. And then John, or, or, uh, Jesus goes into this whole uh, speech about John. And in that speech about John, he makes this declaration. He says, I tell you the truth. All the prophets from the beginning until now are not as great as John. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Who all is he including in that? I mean, there's Elijah, Elisha, and let's not forget Moses himself. I mean, there's Isaiah and there's Jeremiah. Some of these prophets performed incredible miracles. Some of them saw God do incredible signs through them. Let me tell you something. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little um, peek into the gospel. John the Baptist doesn't perform one miracle. None. Zero. He baptizes people, but he never walks on the water. He never turns any fish and loaves into a plentiful and feeds them. He does nothing. All he does is make this declaration and baptize people. That's it. And Jesus says, all the prophets before him aren't as great as he is. If that doesn't tell you God's economy is different than ours, nothing will. We always think, well, God will be proud of me if I accomplish this or if I do these things or if I achieve this. But the truth is, God's economy is about us understanding who we are. And when we understand who we are, we begin to operate in the vein of the Spirit. And God begins to accomplish things through us. And that's when God can elevate. You remember in James, James gave us some great advice. He said, humble yourselves before God. He will lift you up. It's when you realize that you are nothing, that God can take that nothing and speak something into it. You know, that's what he did in the very beginning. He took nothing and created everything there was. Listen, once we realize we are nothing, then God can make something out of us. And that's exactly the picture that John is here. So we should never allow 
a position in the church or a position in business to, that, that God has graciously given to us. We have to recognize where these things come from. But we should never allow those things to go to our head. We should never get hung up on titles. We should never expect or demand people honor us because of the office that you feel. You should never let pride pollute the calling that God has put on your life. People want you to have titles all the time, and they want you to hold those titles. But here's the thing. We're reminded right here in this passage and through the life of John that all we are is a voice. And your message can't be, hey, look at me, look how great I am. Your message has to be, hey, don't look at me, look at him. Look how he continues in verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, the three big ones right there, and you said you're none of them, then why are you baptizing? Here's really what they're asking. Okay, if you won't tell us who you are, who do you think you are? baptizing people if you don't have any of those authorities if you're not a prophet you're not the messiah you have no right baptizing people who do you think you are it reminds me when i was growing up you ever had your mom say what do you think you're doing you ever have your mom say that to you okay and you knew if you were smart you knew that when she asked you what do you think you're doing that she didn't really care what you thought you were doing. You were going to get in trouble not because of what you thought you were doing. You are getting in trouble because of what she thought you were doing, okay? And so if you were smart, you learned that you had to figure out what she thought you were doing so you could come up with a decent lie to get out of that situation. That's the way it works. But this is, in essence, what they're saying. Who do you think you are? Why in the world do you think, if you don't attribute yourself to any of these titles, how do you have the authority to do these things? This is really a question about authority. Where do you get the authority to do what you do? Now, we get this all the time because, you know, Mars Hill is what we call multi-denominational, okay? So we get hit all the time with, well, what denomination are you? And we go, well, we're multi-denominational. Like, Who's your accountability? Well, we're accountable to each other. We have elders, and we have pastors, and we're accountable to the community around us, and we're transparent with our... That's not what I'm at. Um, tell me a title. Tell me something that you're under, because they want you to fit into a category. And the thing is, we shouldn't fit into a category. I mean, I love the fact that at Morris Hill, people come from all different denominations. I'm looking out across this place here, and I know some of you come from Methodist backgrounds. I know some of you come from Pentecostal backgrounds. Some of you uh, are recovering Baptists. I mean, and, 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 and we're all in here together. Here's the beauty. The reason that's important is because all should be welcome at the table for a discussion about God's word and what it calls us to. You know, for me to think that I've got it figured out and you better agree with me and everything, man, that's a wrong place to be. But what for us to say, man, this is a place where we should come together and realize none of us have it figured out. But what we do ask is that you come with a teachable spirit. Because I have one, I promise you. I've, I've been straightened out by, by parishioners for 15 years now. And, and I love it. I love it when they come up and ask me a question. I was like, you know what, I never thought about it that way before. And man, it, it sends me back digging and trying to figure out an answer. And you know what, I've changed my view and position and, and thoughts on things, not major things, but little things that are second-tier issues uh, several times in the last 15 years. It's one of the reasons, have you ever gone to try and find old uh, sermons and you can't find them like any further back than like the last two that we've done? 
That's because my theology has changed so much over the years that we don't put it out there for the public because they would go, wait a minute, this guy says this here, and then like over here he says this, but they don't realize there's seven years between that. I grew a little bit, thank God, right? And that's the whole thing. We all should be growing. I, I didn't understand everything when I started a church, and I've been growing just like you've been growing. And that's the thing is there's nothing in us to praise or to hold up or go, look at this title I have or look at these degrees I have, and I should be appreciated and I should be bowed down to no anything we have is because of the grace of God as John says grace upon grace and this is just a place where we come together and we don't have it figured out but we are committed to this as our source of authority to say and whether God's word says that becomes the foundation for what we believe and then as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another and that's the way God intended for it to be so, so they wanted to know where John got his authority from. Who authorized you to baptize? Now, remember in the first century, not so true. I don't want to go into a, a large history lesson. But if you go back, way back, the Jews did practice this form of baptism called mikvah. But they had stopped that after coming out of the wilderness and investing in the land. So now in the first century, the only people who were baptized were Gentiles. And it was Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. And it was a way to wash off their nasty Gentileness before they come into the kingdom of God. Now, the, one of the reasons the Pharisees care about this is because John is apparently baptizing Jewish people. So they're taking great offense to this. Because, in essence, he's saying Jews need to repent just as much as Gentiles do. And they're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We are not... Like Gentiles, we are people of the covenant. We are the ones that are God's chosen people. And John is in essence saying, if you look at yourself and you look at how you have matched up to God's glory, you will find there's no difference between you and a Gentile. We all need to repent. And so this is one of the reasons that they're taking issue with John baptizing out here in the wilderness. And look at what he says in verse 26. As they call him out, he points them to a greater truth. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Now, John's baptism, he, by his own confession, says, listen, you're making a big deal about me baptizing? Let me just be honest with you about something. My baptism is incomplete. I'm just baptizing with water. What I'm doing is symbolic of something greater than me, greater than baptism, and standing among you is one. And here's where John, now all of a sudden, this ministry that God has given him, and this growing ministry, he begins to shift it and say, don't look at me, look at him. And this is where John, as successful as he's been to gather this huge following, is ready to hand the whole thing over to someone else and to fade into the background. Isn't that amazing? In, in a world where we grow things so that we can be praised, we grow things so that our name can be put at the top. Here's a guy who grew something because God gave it to him, and when the time came, he was willing to hand it over and to step aside. And what a beautiful picture of, of, of the preeminence of Christ. What a beautiful picture of the prominence of the kingdom of God over our own kingdoms that we like to build. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Now, I think there's an allusion here back to the prophet Zechariah as well. In Zechariah 13, 1, it says this. On that day, 
a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So this is the foreshadowing. When the Messiah comes, there's this fountain that will be opened, and this will cleanse them from sin and impurity. So John is saying, listen, I'm baptizing you with water. There's going to be another one who will baptize you with fire. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And that is the forgiveness of sins. That is like what Zechariah was talking about, is a cleansing from sin and all impurity. See, baptism doesn't cleanse you from anything, right? Unless you just didn't take a shower that morning, maybe it got some dirt off of you. But baptism is symbolic of something bigger, is it not? It's symbolic of the Spirit of God coming on you. It's symbolic of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to you. It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming and forgiving your sins and washing you clean. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be washed white as snow. And notice here that John says, there is one among you you do not know. What an indictment on them. I mean, think about what he's saying there. They are the ones who've been looking for the Messiah. They are the ones that know the prophecies. They're the ones that know the ones that are supposed to be the foreshadowers of the Messiah. And he says, he's here and you don't know him. They are the ones looking, but they are the ones that are blind to him. And this begins really a highlighting of this whole chasm that only grows throughout the Gospel of John between the blind and those who see, those who live in darkness and those who embrace the light, those who have titles and those who do not. And the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom from this point forward. It is the humble who become exalted. It's the exalted who become humbled. It is the blind who actually see, and it's the ones who see who are actually blind. And so... Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, that's a shocking statement. Now, you say, well, that's a humble statement that John makes there. No, 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 it's beyond humble. Because you have to understand the culture around that verse. In that day and time, who were the people who untied sandals and took them off of people's feet? It was slaves. The slaves in the house, when, a, when someone would come, they would take the sandal off of their foot and wipe their foot. Now listen to me. I want you to get this further. In first century Rome, there were only two ways to get around. That was either by foot or by horse. So where the horses went, guess what they were dropping everywhere? Yeah, what comes out the back end. The south end of the horse was all over the place. So as you walk down these roads, guess what was caking up between your toes and your toenails and on your feet and under, under, under the strap of your sandals? Yeah, all that stuff. So whenever they came in, the lowest servant would be the one who would have to take those sandals off and clean the animal feces off of the person's foot. John says, as elevated as he is at this day and time, as much accolades as people are throwing at him, he says, you don't even understand. There is one among you that you don't know, that if you knew him, as much as you may think of me, I'm not even worthy to wipe animal dung off of his feet. There's not even a comparison between me and him, my baptism and his, my status and who he is. John will later make the declaration, he has to become more, I have to become less. Now, the reason I think this is so amazing is because later on, John's going to tell us about a story 
of when all the disciples are expecting the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in. And they start kind of jockeying for titles. Who's going to sit at the right? Who's going to sit at the left? And they start having these arguments. They talk about who's done what. And as they're having this argument, they're all in this upper room. Jesus quietly walks into another room, takes off his garments, and puts on the garments of a slave. And as they're talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus goes and starts untying their animal feces-stained shoes. And the creator of the universe begins to wipe the dung off of their feet. John says, I am unworthy to even wipe his feet. But yet the one who we are unworthy to wipe his feet kneels down and wipes ours. If you want to know what greatness is in the kingdom of God, that's all you have to see. If you want to know what it means to be a servant, guess what? If Jesus, if that's what he did, guess what we are to do? We're lower than him. I can promise you that. So there is nothing that we should ever say is beneath us. There's no job, no task, no goal that God may give to us that is beneath us. There is nothing but obedience and disobedience. And we have all been created to do something significant in the kingdom of God. But just remember, God's idea of significance and ours are two totally different things. Look at verse 28, the last verse. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. I think the significance of this last verse here is that, again, he's telling us a real time and a real place. This is not a story. It's not fictitious. He's not making this up. He knows this is when this happened, and this is the place that it happened at. Now, I, get, I want you to get a picture. I wish I had a map of this to show you, but if you could understand where the Dead Sea is and the Jordan River comes down towards it, just north of that a bit and on the east side of the Jordan, there's this place where the Jordan River widens out. Now, this was typically where they believed that a lot of people walked across because when the river was down, when the water level was down, this wide part was actually shallow enough that you could walk all the way across the Jordan River um, without being overcome by the water. So you could literally probably up to your knees, maybe up to your waist at the deepest point when the water was down. And so what happened was there was a community of people that developed there because that was an easy place to cross over the Jordan. They didn't have bridges and stuff like that back then. So this community develops, and they're pretty sure that's where John the Baptist was doing his baptism because this was a popular place for people to come. And so Israel is over there. Now, once you cross the Jordan River, you're not in Israel anymore, even though this is occupied Roman territory. But if you talk about ancient Israel and the boundaries, you are no longer in Israel once you cross over the Jordan River. So these people were literally leaving Israel, coming to John, hearing this impassioned plea to repent of your sin, and they accepted this, and they were baptized in the water, and they came back up out of the water, walked out of the Jordan River back into Israel. And the picture there is these Jews who were buying into what John was preparing them for were coming out filthy and being washed by the water symbolically and coming back into Israel as a new person. What a beautiful picture of what we are called to do in the kingdom of God. 
we are called that through Christ we would become a new creation, a new creature. And I think that's the significance of what we see right there at the very end, telling us where he is, understanding that as they came out of that water, there was something new. There were new opportunities, new perspectives to be embraced. So the question I want to leave you with today is this. Who are you? John was asked this question, who are you? And he knew exactly who he was because he knew what he wasn't. I'm not the Christ, all right? I'm not Elijah, okay? I'm not the prophet, no. Well, what are you? I'm a voice. No title, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. You know, sometimes we may feel like following Christ is walking around in a wilderness, walking around in a place where no one sees the same things you do. Maybe they're not as passionate of the things that you are, but you're a voice. And you know what? Whatever God has given you, whatever lot, whatever influence he's given you, you should be that voice. You should be that voice in that business, that voice in the school. You should be that voice in your class, that voice on your team. You should be that voice in college. You should be that voice wherever God has given you, whatever hobby, interest, wherever you find yourself, you should be that voice. Now, I'm not saying that you get up in the middle of school and go, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, you understand context, right? <laughs> and the context is this. You are that shining example of the grace of Christ. And you should be willing to reflect that graciousness, that grace upon grace that we have received from him, we should be a testimony of that to those who are around us. We should not be the testimony of the opposite, that we are all bargaining for position and titles, and we're all bargaining to be respected. No, we should make ourselves the lowest of the low, and there's no one who we wouldn't serve. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for a word that reminds us that we're all living for something and we're all trying to find value and purpose and significance somewhere and lord if it's if we're trying anywhere outside of our relationship with you we'll never find it it will be a tragedy of errors it will be a a search for fulfillment in a place where we will only find emptiness and depression because nothing in this world will ever fill us because we weren't created to be filled by things in this world. We were only filled with this God-sized void in our life that only you can fill. And until we give you your place in our life, everything else in this world will be out of priority. Lord, I pray for everyone here today who would hear and respond to your word. Lord, that you would give them the answer of who they are. I'm reminded of how Paul starts off in Ephesians by reminding us of who we are by putting us in Christ. In Christ, we are this and that. In Christ. But the whole point is that we have to find ourselves in you. That's where it starts. That's where everything finds its beginning and fruition. So, Lord... For the lonely souls here today, for those who understand, for those who have a ton of questions and those who have been following for years and embrace your call, God, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we are to bring us to where you would have us to be. And God, may you receive that honor and glory that's due to you, not to us. And may you find it in your servants. 
We ask all of this in the sovereign name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and may he give you his peace. Thank you. Blessings as you go in his name.